Hello and welcome to the Winging It Travel Podcast. This is a travel podcast where we're having conversations with new guests every Monday. This is an anecdotal, informative podcast for backpackers, travellers or anyone who's interested in travel. It's a casual style where there'll be stories to tell, tips to share and experiences to inspire. My name is James Hammond. I've travelled to 50 countries, done three work visas and plan to do a big worldwide trip later this year. I've met so many people on my travels in the last 10 years that I just have to get them on this podcast to get their stories on record and provide some tips for you for your trip. There'll be so much travel content coming your way in the next coming weeks, months and years that inspire you to book that trip that you've always wanted. Stay tuned for my weekly episode. Thanks. Hello and welcome to Pods Like Us. I'm Martin Quibell, known to my friends as Marv, and this time I'm speaking with Phil from Deleted Saves. Hey, Phil, thanks for speaking to me. How are you doing? Doing well. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate being on. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to talking about something that we all enjoy doing, I'm sure, or a lot of us. Definitely. So what's your earliest memory of gaming? My earliest memory of gaming would have been probably, I think I might have been about six or seven years of age. Yeah. Um, my father had always been, as my father's an engineer, he'd always been interested in technology. So at some point they had acquired a, an Atari 2600. Classic. Back when, yes, back when Atari was making, so making consoles. And he'd played it for years. And I know, I guess it had always been around since I was born. They just kind of mothballed it, put it in a closet. And there it sat until I was about six or seven. He just came in one day with a literally a shoebox full of the game console and a bunch of cartridges, handed it to me and said, here you go. So he hooked it up to the TV I had in my room at the time. And um, off I went. I had that little black blocky joystick with the, you know, the the one uh, piece standing out of it, the little red button. And I was off playing Asteroids and like Tank Command and Pitfall and all those really, really early classics. So that I would say was probably my earliest gaming memory. So, um, so um, I mean, there's something about that console that is very of its age because it's like, it's almost like the wood paneling almost all that effect. It's given that sort of effect to make it look like it's wood paneled, which is very 1970s. It is. And it, it looks like something that absolutely should fit in your home next to your, you know, stereo record player and whatever uh, wood paneled CRT TV that they had at the time. It was, it was very built, seemed to be, this is just another part of the home electronics, like your blender or your oven or your television set or anything else that would have fit that extent, you know, aesthetic, as you said, put it right next to your beanbag chair, put on your 45s and enjoy a Friday evening at home. Yeah, it looks very much like, like you said, like the furniture. It's it's a bit like technology was like that back then, because if you remember, television sets used to be like that as well. They used to mm -hmm. look like a piece of furniture. So you'd have this wood or, well, it'd look like wood, even though it's probably plastic or something, yes. but it would look like that. And some televisions even came with doors back in the day that you put in front of the television and oh. the old radiogram rate record players that had like a wooden lid that oh, your mum yes. used to put all the dinner on when when she'd get all the <laughs> dinner prepared 
Exactly. Yes. Actually, my grandmother had one of those. It was it had the entire wood paneling, the faux wood over the yeah. speakers. You could close the lid and serve, you know, holiday dinner on top of it. And then if you didn't know it was a record player until somebody opened it up and put on a record. And there you go. Um, you know, Nat King Cole's greatest Christmas hits. Off we go. That's a lovely memory you've just got. You've just put out there by by accident. <laughs> All good. I'm glad. Hopefully, I can jog a few good ones. You, you can't get much better than Nat King Cole Christmas. Oh no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And there was um, uh, what's his Frank Sinatra. I know he cut a Christmas yes. album at some point. Um, it's yeah, the, the great holiday classics. But like I said, that that was very much the aesthetic of the time. Now. Obviously, we're not talking about the things that I had in my home growing up from that period, which was the orange, the pumpkin orange linoleum on the kitchen floor. Yes. Shag rugs that got pulled out later and replaced with, you know, you know, restandard wood paneling floor. And I had what was it? The one of my my washrooms in the house was everything was pea soup green. Yes. And I'm like. Oh, now as an adult going back, looking at it, going, that is a horrendous choice of color. But it was in the 1970s when I was born, 77. That was the only options they had. So when my parents put the house together, that's all that that they had. Like I said, I remember my father would tell me a story of when he was a young man, probably in his late teens, in um, his high school years. He went to Catholic high school and they required that they have straight leg pants literally the only thing sold in stores was bell bottoms. So I know my grandmother had to go out and like literally go to a tailor to get custom straight leg pants for him to wear because he was, you know, the Jesuit priests who ran the school were no nonsense. And every one of them was built like a football player and they were not going to tolerate bell bottoms in their school. Again, a relic of its time. Yeah, absolutely. So actually we'll, we'll stay on this then. So, so where did you gravitate then from from the 2600 did you go up to like we were saying before we started like the tandy computer and then up from there and how did it go from there my next one would have actually been the nintendo entertainment system okay Um, what happened was this is i knew of its existence probably about 1986 um I know it came out in 1985 and, you know, Japan had it a little earlier before it reached our shores here. And I went in a local store that no longer exists uh, where I was raised in Pennsylvania. And I saw it there and I'm like, oh, awesome. They had like the, the Robbie the Robot um, thing that was the gyroscopic player for some of the games and whatnot. And I said, Dad, can I get that? And he's like, no. And I'm like, okay. So several months later, uh, I'd always been kind of uh, oddly sick a lot as a kid, like, you know, head colds would last an extremely long time. Um, so finally, after several years of worrying, my parents, like, even as a little kid, they'd hear me snore. They said, something's not right. So they took me to an ear, nose and throat specialist. And, you know, about the time, it's like 1987. He's got the fiber optic wire. He places the wire at my nose. It's, it's a very weird experience. And he looks over there and my mother, who was a nurse at the time, and she made every every medical doctor in town know that she was a nurse. Um, he called her over and said, you need to see this. So she looks through the camera lens and she's like, oh, dear. It turns out my admins were rotten and they right. had to go. Yeah, they were completely shot. 
so that's why I would get sick so often because they were just constantly inflamed and infected and they were not a good color. So they immediately signed me up for a very simple surgery, you know, like you'd, like you would get your tonsils removed. They went and took my adenoids, which are, you know, about half a couple centimeters up in the, in the nose and throat. And this is the first time I'd been under general anesthetic. I was scared. I'm, I'm not going to even lie. I'm going to put it out there. I was a scared little kid. Um, like I said, my mother was a nurse, so I knew hospitals were not a bad place to be. Um, my grandmother had been in the hospital a lot when I was a kid. This is my father's mother. And so I, I knew that it wasn't like a, a place of horrors. There wasn't, you know, blood dripping from the walls and the doctors running around cackling madly. But, you know, I was a kid. What did I know? Yeah. So I have the surgery. Everything goes fine. I'm obviously I'm still here. Everything's perfect. Um, so I'm waking up from general anesthetic and I'm in my hospital room and I wake up, my parents are there and I'm still very blurry on what happens. And my father gives me a card. I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, why are they giving me a card? I don't understand. So I opened it and I begin reading it. And it was just said, you know, for you, one Nintendo entertainment system waiting for you when you get home. Hmm. Wow. And and I'm like, okay, so I was out of school that week just to recover because they weren't, you know, obviously they don't, they treat adenoid removal like they do tonsillitis. They don't know what's going on in there. They have to, they don't want you running around playing, having to talk, answer questions in school. So the doctor is like medically, you're off for the week, kid, enjoy. And um, they hooked me up and I sat there and the first game I played was at the time, it was the dual cartridge that had both the original Super Mario Brothers and Duck Hunt. Okay. That was my only game. Hmm. And it kind of went from there. Now, um, back in the days when they did video store rentals, um, my father would go to get every Wednesday night, we would have a movie night. That's, so they'd rent, you know, whatever the classics of the 1980s were. So, you know, um, Indiana Jones movies and, you know, um, everything we had at the time. I'm trying to remember. It's been so long. Um, and he would get me a game like whatever they had to rent. And this is before Blockbuster was officially a thing or Hollywood yep. video or anything like that. So it literally was a mom and pop shop that he would stop at and rent me a game. And so that's how I began to, and I would you know, bug him all the time because I was you know, an annoying little kid like that. And I was, you know, I'm not, like I said, I've told people, I'm not trying to, you know, say I was better than anyone. I just, I was lucky because my father was an engineer and he had a successful business where he was in charge. He was the president of his company and he used his engineering expertise all the time. And he had clients around the world. So yeah. I had it a little bit better than a lot of other kids in my neighborhood. Um, so I got to both rent games and play games. So that's how I began to build it. Uh, sometime around, I think about 88 or 89, um, my mother actually kind of gets the idea that personal home computers might be something important, might be the future. And, you know, she went to, to college and uh, many women of young women of her time were taught to be typists. Yep. So she realized that, you know, it looks like the typewriters go in the way of the dodo here. Let's get them a personal computer. So we went to one of the times he actually had those stores. He didn't go to Best Buy or Alpha Amazon or anything, bought me a computer. And one of the first games I ever had for it, I think was police quest because I'd played it at a friend of mine's house. His dad loved computers. And so that's what I got. And police quest is an old Sierra game. I remember that one because my father came home from work that night, saw me with my mother and I, we were all setting it up. And, you know, my, you know, the plan back then is you're going to use it for school. You're going to be typing your reports and everything on it, printing them all out. Yep. My father was livid, absolutely livid when he comes home. 
And he says, why did you just spend money on this? He already has a Nintendo. Right. And the, and the argument with my mother is, yes, but he also has the ability to do his schoolwork on this, too. And, of yeah. course, it didn't help because I literally was sitting there with Police Quest, you know, the keyboard in front of me, the mouse in hand. I don't think I made it out of the police station before I ran into a wall and had to start the game over. Um, but, yeah, I, I then had to, like, basically prove with the Tandy that, yes, I'm doing my reports. Oh, yes, look, dinosaurs. Yes, uh, eight, you know, 1776. <laughs> and then immediately go back over and play yeah. the game. So those, I think, were my earliest really starts as um, as an enjoyer of video games. But th but then you'd be re uh, printing your reports out on the old dot matrix printers then. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was, oh, I can still remember that noise. It is just, I think, I think it's in a lot of people, it's like the first time we had internet. It's the first time with yes. AOL dial, dial up, that distinct noise, the dot matrix printer is, it was not a noise that leaves you easily. No. Absolutely. No. And if you watch old films, you'll hear that noise when you when you hear them printing out things on old films like exactly oh, yes. And I, I I sometimes tell my students of these things, and of course they're born with mobile phones in their hands. So the first thing they do is like, Mister, no, that didn't happen. I'm like, I was there. I lived Ooh. through it. Yes, it did happen. But they wouldn't even know about dial-up tones, would they? You know, the screeching and all that that you used to get when you used to try and, you know, plug it into a, to a modem and, you know, to use that. And so they wouldn't even know any of that. They, you know, they don't know. They, it's, and you can't blame them. It's no. the time has moved on. At some point, we all become relics. As I've said to my students before, you know, there's going to become a point where I'm no longer, you know, you know, viable here as far as what I know of the of the modern day. And I hate to tell you kids, it's coming up quick because you're already beginning to lose me on some things here. So you'll have to forgive me as an old man um, if I'm not hip <laughs> to what's going on. Because they're like, we're on Snapchat. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. But then eventually, so you 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 went from there and over the years you've uh, you've had um also had the oh, I don't know you've had the Xbox 360 I'm guessing as well mm -hmm. I and um, I, I, I liked the fact that you rented a Dreamcast as well to play games yes that was um, in a lot of cases what happened is that the console at the time and all of its games was sold to purchase the, the fund the purchase of the next console um, so that's why when I do my show, I do it as a retrospective piece where I'm actually kind of trying to remember it because I know a lot of a lot of the people in my circle, and I'm gonna you know call it a couple of names here, um, like the main quest with Keith Daspar, um, Eric at Unlockables, uh, Dave Jackson over at um, Tales from the Backlog, yeah. Brian and Ryan at Listoff, and, and a whole bunch of people I'm in my podcasting circle with. A lot of what they do, and I don't you know I don't blame them. I actually think it's really good they will go back and actually play the game for their particular show. Uh, if they can do it on original hardware, they do. Um, but the retro market is very expensive right now. Yeah. Most of them go through emulation. So they get to play it. Uh, it's not that I'm against emulation. I'm not. I'm actually all for it because of, you know, a lot of the companies don't historically preserve anything anymore. So if uh, someone who has never played this wants to come back and play it now, they, there's, no, there's no original hardware unless they want to shell out ridiculous amounts of money. So emulation is the key. It's just that I 
haven't. I, I oftentimes don't have time to sit and replay even an old NES game. So I'm going off of memory and getting, you know, uh, doing a little research and whatnot. Thankfully, my memory for this stuff is pretty good. But a lot of cases, I the purchase of the new system was funded off of the old. So that's why I don't have in perpetuity all of these different consoles. But I had the Super Nintendo. I had a Sega Genesis. I had the... Nintendo 64, I had the PlayStation 1, PlayStation 2, Xbox 360, PS4, PS5. This is going to sound, I realize it's going to sound like a very, like, you know, first world problem sort of thing here. <laughs> but um, just kind of, and of course, various personal computers over the years, I'm just kind of, I've been going through chronologically to make sure I don't miss anything. The, yes, the one time I did rent the Dreamcast was specifically because I'm a fan of the Resident Evil series. Yeah. Um, note around the world, uh, other places in the world, it's Biohazard. Um, it just so happens that that year, Sega got the rights from Capcom to put uh, Resident Evil Code Veronica on the Dreamcast. And I'm like, I want to play this. Um, I don't want to own a Dreamcast because it's the only game I want to play. I don't want to spend 300 some dollars, whatever it was, um, to purchase the system just for one game. So, uh, one of the local video rental shops, it was, that was at that point, it was either Hollywood Video or Blockbuster, I forget, in my area, was actually doing this insane thing I, I don't think anyone would recommend today, was actually renting out a whole console to play a game. Wow. And of course, they, you had to sign a waiver, like, you know, if it comes back damaged, missing pieces, you essentially purchased it, plus so much, you'd be blacklisted from the store. It was it was harsh things, and I understand because it's it's hardware. They purchased hardware, and they you know put the store you know store site number and name all over it, everything. But yeah, I purchased it over the weekend, literally just to play that game. And of course, like you know, foolishly, like several months later, it became such a blockbuster game that they began Capcom then ported it to every other system. And I already had a PS2 at the time, so they ported it over to the PS2, and I just picked up a copy, and I'm like, well. $250 I'm not getting back. That was that was a lesson learned. So, but you know, it's sometimes when you that with these multi-system games, these multiple systems that are competing in the market, and I understand you know, video games are a business. They're not a they're you know, this isn't quality of life. You don't, it's not like medical care or food or air or water. You don't need it to survive. It's it's a it's a fun time, you know, relaxation thing. So I don't begrudge them exactly the prices they charge or the competitive nature of it. But there are times when quite simply, it's a little too much. So, you know, we, you have to, you have to pick and choose what your method of entertainment is. And a lot of times, let's be honest, um, people are buying these systems for their children. They may not have the money. They may be, you know, an entire, again, holiday, paycheck may go to fund something that is going to be for their kid for the next a few years to keep them happy and you the problem is you never know especially with every console generation that comes out you never know who's going to be the winner and it's almost like they tell you you don't want to be on the losing side except yeah. we don't know who's going to be the losing side yet and that's you know but the xbox 360 is an example um that was a dicey one because it just happened to be several games on there I wanted to play that they weren't on the PlayStation. And PlayStation at the time, the PS3 was, I think they wanted like 600 some dollars. They may have been the going price. It was ridiculous. 
and the Xbox was more affordable, like 200 some, like 250. So I went with that. Turns out for that generation, the Xbox 360 was the winner. It, you know, in, you know, GDP terms, um, it just had the majority of games and PlayStation got left out in the cold. They come roaring back with the PS4 generation and they end up becoming the winner for the next, you know, the next generation cycle. I mean, I'm glad the marketers, you know, the marketing staff and everything like that were cool with it, but you don't know, especially like I felt bad, you know, at that point I'm buying games as a, as a grown man. Yeah. If I make a bad purchase, well, it's not like it's going to interrupt my rent. I can pay my bills. My car is working fine. Oops. If you're a parent, you've got two or three kids and you need to keep them happy and quiet while you try to get five minutes of peace in amongst bills and jobs and things like that. And you find out that the system only has like two or three games. And now the kids have played them all on their board. You're out of luck. That's right. But I mean, you know, I'm going to jump to something uh, a bit further on in the list here, because it's, it's something that, that bugs me that you mentioned on an episode or you mentioned it a few times, actually. And every time you mention it, it it's something that, that jumps out at me is the fact of uh, patches for games which is irritating because it's almost like the game isn't finished in time. So you get the game, there's a, there's a problem with it. And then you have to download what's called a patch to correct that problem or to add update or with all these games. And it's really irritating. It is. And it's, it's becoming worse. It's becoming worse with uh, every, every new game and every console cycle. I swear to God, there've been, um, like some of the really big and famous ones, like the Call of Duty series, which I'm not new too versed in, but I kind of you you hear it in the general gaming discourse. When you purchase a game for now sixty or seventy dollars, um, which is already a significant chunk of money, it's not you know it's not pocket change. This is not going out and drinking money. This is not going to get a pizza money. This is a bill. This is two bills. This is your electric bill, your water bill, gas bill, something like that that, you, that you've you know, you're having to double time make money for, you purchase this game, either you buy it digitally or you purchase a physical disc, put it in your system, you upload it. And day one, you're getting there, you're all set, you're ready to go have fun with your friends, you're playing it or whatever the experience is. All of a sudden, you now have to wait an hour, two hours, six hours for a day one 64 gig patch. And I'm like, that is more than double what the actual memory of the game is. And yes. this is to fix bugs, it's to fix issues, it's to upload things that they didn't tell you about when they sold you the game or when they previewed it at one of the, the many, you know, worldwide um, up and coming trade shows. And then you're sitting there going, well, you know, this was going to be my Saturday afternoon, but now I'm sitting here, I might as well go mow the lawn or wash my clothes or something like this and wait for my game to finish doing its thing. Um as much as I'm kind of in a love-hate relationship with them, uh, Bethesda Studios, who is yep. now under the umbrella of Microsoft, they're famous for this. The The bugs are ridiculous. Um, as I've said before, when I, when I did a couple of the, well, several of their games now, the Xbox 360 slash PC era, um, Skyrim is, uh, Bill Scrolls V is one of my favorite all-time games. The the bugs i've had console lock up solid and freeze i've had laptops running it lock solid and freeze i've had a high-end two thousand dollar pc 
lock up and freeze. And this is after I went out and got fan-made patches to the, the game's basic UI, the user interface and the coding system to get it to fix bugs. There are still just more bugs, more issues, more glitches, more in the system. And, you know, God forbid you do something on the PC, like where you mod the game or you put in, especially in Skyrim, you buy custom um, fan-made uh, follower characters and, you know, cloaks and certain types of things, weather effects, things like that, not even talking the crazy stuff. And they just don't interface well with the game's code, even though they've been yeah. built from the ground up to face the code. And after a while, game companies, they'll, they'll maybe patch it for six months, a year or two. And then like, well, you're on your own. Something happens. Good luck. And you have to go out and hope that there's a fan out there who has done something to fix it. And that's on personal computer if you're lucky. If you're on a console, you are completely out of luck because yeah. once the company stops supporting it, additional fixes don't happen because obviously the programmers, uh, the asset people, everything like that, they need to be paid. They need to be paid. They have, you know, they have roofs over their heads. They need, they need to feed their kids, their pets, themselves, clothes, heating, cooling, water. Um, if you're not paying them, then why are they going to waste their time fixing this when they can go on to the new thing, yep. which is currently paying? But it, but it's something that's that's come that's got worse the further we've got on with technology because back when we were playing games on the old Commodore 64s and the Ataris and the Amigas and all these computers, we mm -hmm. didn't have the same issues, but then it no, started, it started to become a thing with when PC gaming became a bigger thing in the nineties or the late nineties, because I remember I got a game. I don't know if you know it Warzone 2100. I think it was called. I've heard of it. Yeah. Okay. And that one, that had patches that you could get online to make certain things work better and and that so so it's then when they first came out they were a good thing that wasn't to fix a mistake they were just there to enhance the the actual game experience essentially and then it's like the the company suddenly thought oh people actually like these perhaps we can still hit the the dates when these games are supposed to come out, but if we're if they're a bit wrong, we'll just force them to pay this extra bit of money so that their game actually works. Absolutely. Um, I remember the days in like things like PC Magazine, where I think I, I remember a thing is one of the one of the original Doom games, the, a free update, a, a disc that came with it. You loaded into your computer. And it just added additional levels and fun stuff. As you said, it enhances. It doesn't yeah. fix anything. Um, but they still hit deadline. Now, deadlines in these companies, have, especially in the last couple of years, have become noticeably public, how terrible they are. Uh, crunch culture, as they call it. How, in a lot of cases, um, workers are not allowed to unionize, uh, which is common. We have um, a, a thing still happens here in the States. It's called union busting. Um, it's illegal. It, it <laughs> is completely illegal on the federal level. But companies still do it. I work for a company, and I will not name them, who did these tactics to us because conditions, low pay, long hours, like dragging on overtime, 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 not getting compensated properly. So union was considered, but the company immediately would send in people going, oh, you're going to lose all this and we'll, we'll pull out of the area. We'll take the jobs with us if you're going to push the issue. This happens a lot in the gaming sphere, and we're now seeing issues with this. Um, plus, you know, abuses. I know, like I said, Activision, Blizzard, we hear about the company influences on the top level up. Yeah. Uh, Ubisoft, um, they're, especially their Montreal um, 
side of things has been known to be very sexist, very abusive towards especially their female employees. Um, a lot of really terrible things. The problem is we love the games. We love the product. And we tend to put aside and not keep these, these company owners and these, these people the task for their mistreatment of their workers, their abuses, their pushing it, and as well as the garbage that they're putting out because we love the products so much. And like you said, yes, that didn't, as PC gaming seems to have been the rise of it. I don't want to throw it wholly on PC gaming, but exactly as you said, they began to realize that even if it's something's wrong, it's, there's a, it crashes, there's an issue, we can put out a couple fixes. Maybe if we package it with something else, we can get a little money out of them. Okay. Now we've moved into the phase where like, we don't care if it's broken, we'll fix it day one. If you've already paid $60, you get to pay 60 more. I'm like, um, now you're asking, you're, you're eating into my budget. You're eating into my rent. You're eating into my utilities. You're eating into car payments. You're eating into mortgages. You're eating into a lot of things with this folks. Um, and you, you tend to forget that this is, and again, I understand, like I said, I've understood there are companies that are designed to make money, but the problem is you can't have all the money. There's no such thing as having all the money in the world. You need to do something, lower your prices, maybe not act a fool, lower expectations, not blow everything out, your budgets out to the something that looks like a Hollywood premiere. It's a little ridiculous. I mean, it's beyond ridiculous, in fact, I would say. But that's another thing as well, because over the years, the cost of actually buying the games has gone up exponentially where when you bought games in the 80s, they were pretty affordable. You know, kids could buy them on the pocket money back yes. then. But now if kids want to buy games for their computers or their or their actual consoles, if, if they're buying them, I mean, a lot of them, they're, they're on, online and streamed anyway, or somehow another mm -hmm. saved on there. Any, any way they do it at all, it won't be on one week's pocket money like it was back then. Now they would have to save that pocket money over a long period of time to to pay these things. And then, like you said, they've got to pay the extra then to actually make the games work, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and it depends on where you are. I know here in the States, the median norm game is now $69.99 as far as dollars, $70. I think Canadian, uh, that's more like $90, $90 Canadian. Uh, and wherever you are, based on the, the, the monetary value at the time, you're going to get fluctuations in what you're paying. And that's just it. And they keep, and you know, everyone has said, you know, the tech company said, oh, this is the new normal. They should have been charging these prices in the 90s. Uh, no. no. You know, people say the game companies, all the, all the major firms that, you know, sort of satellite the game companies and, and, you know, do the games media have said, well, this is the new normal. We've been paying this, you know, we've been expecting it. Prices had to go up to consider all the people that they have to. Okay, I understand. The companies are employing hundreds of people to do this. The problem is most of that money is not going back to their employees. It's going to their PR firms. It's going to management. What is it? I think um, Bobby Kotick at uh, Act, it's not Activision. Uh, yeah, Activision. His average yearly salary is, I think, well over the $40 million mark. He could wow. cut his salary in half, never spend that money for the rest of his life, give it all back to the company to improve his employees' life status, and he would never lose a night's sleep. Um, but the boards of directors and CEOs of these companies want their paycheck. They've begun to become power brokers. 
And as I've said it on my own show, I understand it could be, you know, it made, they sell video games. They could sell anything. They could sell steel. They could sell beef. They could sell tires. They could be selling oil. It literally is all the same commodity market for them. It's just a matter of they and be they working in the entertainment industry selling um, essentially knockoff computer hardware, or in some cases the the real thing. And that's all it is. Is just a matter of artificial inflation. Again, I'm not I'm not an economist. I could be wrong. I'm sure there's a thousand people out there that would correct me. But from my understanding, it is artificial. Uh, artificial need so that they can squeeze more money out of the average person who the way things are going increasingly does not have the extra money to spend no but it's it's also a a byproduct of the fact of the fact you know that the that these bigger companies have essentially i mean if we go back to when we first started playing games the two of us because we were of a similar I mean, I'm mm-hmm. a bit I'm a bit older than yourself, but we're from a similar sort of era where those games there were a lot more different independent companies where where then that's why it was so cost e- easy on cost back then. Mm-hmm. It, it was easy on cost back then because there were these independent companies, so there was more competition essentially, yes. and because you had the indies like the uh, like the US Golds, the elites. The, the Llama Soft and all those little companies, mm-hmm. it, 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 it was easier to be able to afford these games, but then they ended up getting bought out by the big conglomerates, which mm-hmm. means that then, because there's so little of them, it's like the film industry, you know, films are more expensive now because all these big firms have bought the little firms. It's the same thing. So everything gets more expensive because there's fewer companies there mm-hmm. to to spread out the cost, essentially. Yeah, no, it's, um, and we watch all the time, uh, Electronic Arts, EA has done it, and um, you can find online anywhere, there's a list of all the companies that they have purchased, and then shut down, once they have their properties and have shut down, and burn them out and shut down. Uh, the last well-known one was Visceral. Visceral, they were the company that made the Dead Space uh, series of horror games. And I think they, they finally shut the doors on them in 2017. Um, but they were a long train of well-known smaller independent companies that, you know, they wanted their shot at the big time and EA came knocking, bought them outright and sold them out. Absolutely sold them up the river. And like you said, the more people involved does reduce costs and because it increases competition, as you said, the it's when the let's get involved. Now, I've had a, you know, I've talked about this in a few of my shows, and, and once I'm gonna, I'm gonna end up sounding like a socialist here. <laughs> Somebody is gonna send me nasty emails, but, um, you know, we have, you said the big conglomerates, and here in the states we have the antitrust laws that we're supposed to have. The problem is they're all paper tigers; they're extremely toothless. Because in a lot of cases, what happens is a major conglomerate. It doesn't matter what it is. Oil, like Standard Oil, is a, is a good experience, you know, history uh, lesson. Um, a lot of other companies will come in and they'll buy up the competition and they'll let the competition exist as an arm of the main company under their name. So that when yeah. you turn around and go to the Federal Trade Commission here in the States and go, we're not squashing competition. Look at all of these companies that are doing what we do. We're just ahead of the market. And the FTC has you know, so few people, they can look at the books and go, there's nothing we can do because we know that all of these same companies pay their paychecks back to 
you know, conglomo, whatever the major corporation is, and we can't stop them. Why? Because conglomo turns around to the government and goes, oh, the re-election campaign's coming up, Senator. Well, here's a couple million. Yes. Didn't tell you that. And uh, by the way, we want this, 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 and this while we're in our district and state. And of course, you know, running an election here in the States is not cheap. That's There's a reason that multimillionaires are now the ones that run my government. Yep. And it is extremely annoying. Um, as as the world has seen in, in the last couple of years. And I, I deeply apologize for this as an American. I'm sorry. Um, we didn't really intend this to happen. But that's where we're at is that all these conglomerates and they have the power and the money to throw behind it. And the little guy, in this case, smaller independent companies see their shot at the big time. They see the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, except it was never a pot of gold. It's just the flash of the sun. And there's nothing we can do. Hey, it's Gil from The Mind Today's Mind Culture and Social Podcast. And you're listening to Pods Like Us. Would you say, going going to this other point that I said, though, you know, uh, another thing that's changed over the years, the quality of um, the quality of the actual games has changed over the years as well, where we had the, the old the old 8-bit little sprites that we had mm-hmm. jumping and things back in the old Manic Miner days and games like that and Donkey Kong. Mm-hmm. And it's got to now where it's almost realistic. It's almost like when you're playing these games... It's like you're watching real people, essentially. Yeah, no, that that's conversely, that's the that's the devil in the detail. That's the problem because they bring they pull up a, a close up of these characters. Um, a couple of them, I'll like uh, I'll throw out like uh, Kratos from God of War, or uh, any of the main characters, Arthur Morgan from Red Dead Redemption Two. Yep. And you're looking at them and going, "Oh my God, I, I actually see a poor count in this this digital character's skin. Yeah. It looks like a real person." Like they're sweating in real time. And I'm like, this is an amazing uh, point of art that we've gotten to. And I do consider games art. The writing has gotten exponentially better. I mean, these are cinematic writers. I would love to come in as a writer myself on some of these, even for a small part. The quality has definitely improved. And I can understand the arguments because now it's not just like I said, eight-bit sprites jumping around, like you know, Super Mario Brothers hopping on mushrooms and turtles. We play a couple levels and we're done. They are these full 60, 70, 80, 100 hour titanic experiences. Like um CD Project Red, the, the Polish company, yeah. uh, who recently had success with uh The Witcher 3, their their Witcher series. Um you're looking at this, and I, I played it and I went, even if I don't finish this game. You know, all the characters look lifelike. They are utterly fantasy, very Tolkien-esque in their their themes and their, their setting, along with, you know, utterly fantastic ideas. But I'm looking at, you know, our main character, who's this gruff, sour, meadow sounds like he's got a throat cancer infection. And he's got these, you know, broad swords across his back. And he's talking to this utterly bananas uh, creature out of, out of uh, pure fantasy. And... You're going, I could almost see the veins in this unknown creature's under it, their skin working the same way I can see, you know, the, the human character. And I'm going, this is insane. 
we're even to the point of our fantasy that these look like they could step off out of out of the screen off the computer and you know go ask if you want to go have a pint somewhere this yeah. is you know this is insane but you know it, my question becomes ultimately at what cost yeah. at what cost and that unfortunately i think i don't know the answer to yet but then to us if we wanted to, I mean, I know that I've, I, what we were talking about as well was emulators. We've talked about those. I actually have an emulator on mine and I can play some old Commodore 64 games on mm-hmm. there. And I don't mind doing, I don't mind getting, you know, Paperboy up and having to go on Paperboy or <laughs> something, you know. And That's a classic, but, yes. But, you know, if you play that with someone who's younger now, they would hate that game because they'd think that it's it's awful because they'd just say, oh, it looks terrible. Yeah. But to us, we don't see that. So that's another way that technology has changed. And so the younger generation don't see that the same that we do. Yeah, there's definitely a certain amount of lack of appreciation. And I think in a lot of cases, it would be like taking a group of students to an art museum, <clears throat> excuse me, and showing them Okay, here's the Da Vinci's, here's the Michelangelo, here's Rembrandt, here is Botticelli, here's all these amazing artists, and they whip around and look at it and go, that's old, and they crack open, you know, their, their favorite copy of their, their manga, their, you know, their Japanese cartoonist, or whatever current, you know, Marvel production is going on, going, yeah. this is the stuff, this is the new thing right here, old man, and I'm like, you don't understand, to get to the point where these people are standing, they had to stand on the shoulders of giants. They had to stand what was on coming before. And that's kind of another thing I keep going is like, there's, there's a history here. There's a history that we don't address and that we need to. It's like, if we burned every history book in the world, it's like I said, well, to not, to understand how we got to, you know, the point of say world war II, we have to go back to the early days of the Roman empire. And we said, no, we're just going to cut all that out. We're going to ignore Trajan. We're going to ignore Marcus Aurelius. We're going to ignore all those old buggers existed and what they did. And we're just going to focus on this. Well, now you've lost a whole part of the story. And yes, it looks old. Yes, it may not look like the thing that's now that's current. And that's what a lot of these companies rely on is that, hey, don't worry about our back catalog. Don't worry about this stuff. Just look at the funny flashing objects now. Isn't this realistic? Doesn't that look great? Hey, kids, give us money. And that's what I kind of realized that, you know, I get to look at my analytics for my show and I realized that majority of my listeners come in between the ages of about 25 and around 40. Okay. People that are slightly younger than me or somewhat younger than me who are now coming into it as more of an adult appreciation, I think, wanting to know what came before, but they don't necessarily play the games or have played the games. Like they want someone, they're looking for someone to, I think, give them a history lesson. And I think I provide that even in the short form that I do things and give them a you know option. Do you, is this, does it sound appealing to you at all? If not, Hey, I get it. Totally understand. There's other things you may want to do. If it does, now you're going to have to go hunt it down. Emulation yep. might be your best bet unless you had an older sibling who like had an old console or copy this laying around. It's like, Hey, I don't play this anymore. Here you go. Um, and I don't consider that a bad thing. But I also noticed that I have almost no listeners under the age of 25. No. Be- because I think it's just, 
and I'm not calling anyone out. I'm not, you know, trying to poke fun at anyone. I think there's just such a gulf time between what I'm familiar with and what I know and what I see as historic industry movements and what's current now. What's the flashy thing? What's the thing to look at? There is just a point where time, time's passed. It's like being a fan of, of cars of a certain era. If you're somebody who likes to build, you know, rebuild cars from the 60s and 70s, of course, some kid pulling up in a Maserati or a Mustang or something like that built in 20 or Mercedes Benz built in 2022 is not going to have the same level of appreciation as one of those old eras. And they're just going to burn past you go, well, enjoy, old man. What can you do? And you're like, you know, you can't do anything. My hope is enough people at some point will reach that level of maturity. We're going, well, now we're curious. We knew what we have now. Can we go find out what happens? But every year, I, I think that generation becomes less and less, which I think is just the way of things that may just be what we've experienced as humanity for thousands of years now, where at some point things just don't become relevant anymore and they get left in storybooks and we move on to deal with immediate need. And I think games just see it as a piece of entertainment. We tend to leave, unless something really sticks out, pieces of entertainment get left behind. Which, which is a shame because, you know, some other entertainments like, like you know, old television shows and and uh, music, they come back after so long, people go back and listen to these things. But it mm -hmm. doesn't seem to work with, I find the same thing with film to, a, to the same sort of degree as games as well, where people will not go back past a certain point Mm -hmm. It's it's almost the old the old adage of oh it's black and white it must be old and then yeah. they miss it and it's the same with games as well where they'll go well if I can't tell that it's a person realistically then it's not interesting to me so I don't know why it's different for games and films than it is for music and television. That's a good question. I don't know. I I think maybe a television. Um sometimes it just likes to loop themes like bring back tropes loop themes back around so that everything seems old old is new again as they say music i find it interesting because you get performing artists from around the world who who get an idea and they go hey i vaguely have a memory of this um i'm going to play it and then they go back to a back catalog that maybe the family had and they can go oh my god and i re-emulate this in in the modern day um films yeah, you're right. Films are odd because there's a, a rich history there that gets lost. Like um, I use myself as an example. Um, I grew up, you know, obviously the Western is very much a part of the fabric of the United States yeah. um, for, for decades um, before I was even born. Western films were the only thing you could get. I, I remember my grandmother uh, used to say she, she would, you know, rue the day Westerns came on. She said, you know what? Your grandfather would come home. And there'd be nothing but horses in my living room from five in the afternoon till we went to bed at 10 at night. That's just how it was. And then, of course, that fell out of favor and it stopped. But now, of course, it comes back. You know, in some cases, television shows comes back around, but not really film. I remember um, because I started playing a couple of Western themed video games, I saw, you know, I never, you know, my, I was listening. My father had listened to Westerns and, you know, watched Western movies in the background. I remember my grandfather had too. But I never really caught on. And then I said one day, I'm going to go down to the store and I'm going to get find out what's going on here. So I bought a boxed set of um, the Dollars Trilogy, 
Clint Eastwood's, yes. you know, one with you know the man with moon name, Sergio Leone films. And I sat through and watched them. I went, these are actually good. Yeah. These are genuinely good films. Um, the, you know, a lot of time has passed, but the tension is still there. The storytelling is there. It, a lot of the times in the film, it's less what the characters, what they don't say in some cases is what does the speaking for them? A certain, a certain type of acting, a certain look that is emblematic of its time, but there we go. And I said, okay, now I can, I feel like I can better appreciate the games that are coming out now. Obviously there are you know, modern touches and modern storytelling methods, but trying to get someone to like literally grab some young person, sit down from a film, even from the seventies and go, watch this. It explains a lot. And they're like, no, it's, it's like, you know, it's like a puppy. They just squirm out of your hands and they're off they go. Um, one of the things I actually appreciate is um, in the, you know, thanks to the pandemic, so many YouTubers became reaction channels watching movies of a certain stripe. Now, obviously they're all watching a lot of the same movies at this point, but they went back and they've gone and done even movies from the eighties. And some of them come back and do movies from the 70s. And they're sitting here, and these are you know, mostly young people, not all, but mostly young, going, these are great movies. I didn't know this was out here because, well, yeah, because by the time you were born, it was almost the year 2000 at this point. The movies had been 20 years old when you were came onto this earth, let alone now, which additional 20 years have passed. And trying to get someone, though, to sit down, you almost have to like break it up into small chunks and spoon feed it and go, okay. You're not going to sit through a 90-minute movie. If I give you 15 minutes, what your appetite? What do we get here? Hard to do. Games are the same way. It's almost like you have to go, but wait, wait, there's more. It's not just the graphics. Let me tell you about the story. It's almost like you're having to re-elevator pitch a game that's now 20, 30 years old and you know, to a new audience. And as you know, with elevator pitches, you can go through 20 of them before you get one taker. Yeah, that may be the taker that you need, but the likelihood of success is very low. Uh, but at the same time, so going to another subject slightly, though, is that while films have become more uh, blockbuster, shall we say, now, Games have almost come on as well, because when we were younger, you, you've hinted at this earlier with, with how the, the writing of the stories has, has got better over the years. Games were much simpler when we were younger, in a way, mm -hmm. than they are now. They are very intricate games now. So, you know, it's not like, oh, you're a frog and you've got to get from this side of the road to the other side of the road without being getting hit by a car. So you go, there, 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 there. It's mm -hmm. not that sort of gaming anymore. And... So I think that started with probably, like you said, you know, Doom and things like that. It would start from that period where you'd have maps. You'd have the old place mapped out, basically. The, the programmers would with different, they'd have it all set out. And it's got more so over the years. Definitely. And I again, I put that on PC and that's a good thing because uh, back in the day, obviously we had not only the Sierra Point and Click Adventures, uh, later Lucasfilms, you know, Point and Picture Games, but we also had things like Ultima, Might and Magic coming in, trying to tell that, emulate that. Again, I, I, I hate to use Tolkien's name so often, but he's such a good callback to so many people of the fantasy genre, mixing in, mixing in with Dungeons and Dragons and things like that, and do that whole world building thing. Well, consoles were very, you know, it's a game for children. So 
course, we have to keep it extremely simple. At some point, like you said, the script writing becomes, you know, this, this thing where we have to tell the story. And it's not just because it's one or two guys in a boardroom somewhere. In a lot of cases, especially with modern scripting, depending on where you are in the world, you have to make these sort of universal themes because some of your development team could be in the States, the rest of it could be in Canada. You could be interfacing with a European development team, uh, going back to home office in Japan. You're trying to get all of these different work moving parts together uh, from globally, and you're trying to tell a cohesive tale, which is critical to storytelling is telling cohesive and unified tales, yeah. uh, which means in some cases, there's a lot of meetings, a lot of back and forth, but PC games start becoming these cinematic experiences. Um, eventually, I think the consoles got thirsty. They began to realize, look, we have this whole market that's not just going to be shooting, you know, refighting the Battle of the Bulge or playing racing games or wanting to emulate like um, FIFA or Madden NFL, they want a story. Let's give them that story. How do we compete? Well, we're going to turn to the PC market and go, how did they do it? Um, like one of the foundational games for me, because I'm a Dungeons and Dragons player, was when um, they came out with the very first Baldur's Gate yep. in 1998, I believe at this point, where you know, you're trying to essentially emulate and a lot of games that had done computer RPGs, CRPGs before, but you're trying to emulate that home experience of sitting around a table with you at the head behind the screen with all your books and your dice and three or four of your buddies around the table on a Sunday afternoon or Friday night, whatever it is, pretending to be wizards and knights and, uh, you know, thieves and all this stuff, trying to break into catacombs and steal from, you know, the queen or whatever, you know, steal from the dragon's horde. And Baldur's Gate came close. Yeah. Because it came with a very in-universe story uh, about, you know, what happened when, you know, after the god of murder had been killed, um, which I won't go into that because we'll be here for hours to tell about that story. But he had all of these uh, demigods that he created, and you're one of them, as it turns out, and you're one of many in the world, and there's one in your region that's trying to wipe everyone out and take all the power. But the problem is, it's not just you go there and defeat the bad guy. It's you start out at a place where it's home, you get thrown out, which is very much the hero's journey. But then you end up going, wait a minute, I have this entire map that I'm looking at. I don't have to go right away and defeat the bad guy. I can go take a 15-day walk east yeah. and end up on 50 adventures, collect new party members. And when I'm finally strong enough, I'll charge into the, the villain's stronghold and we'll have it out. We'll have, you know, we'll finally draw swords, we'll get spells ready, and we'll do this thing. And that was like foundational for me because it finally felt like, you know, the stuff I was already doing with my friends trying to write a story and play, you know, play this game with them was on personal computer, it was finally finally available. But I had to go to a PC to get it. If yeah. I turn around to my console, you know, Legend of Zelda is a lot of fun, but a lot of that is go here, collect item, move to next dungeon, collect item from dungeon, move on. You get a little set dressing along the way. Eventually, at some point, the console market after the 2000s went, wait a minute, we're getting left behind. Story is what we need. Yep. Yep. Uh, but you were saying that about Baldur's Gate, and that reminds me of the fact that I used to absolutely spend hours playing Diablo 
in back yes. in the day and that's a similar game as well where mm-hmm. you had where you'd play like a thief or somebody and you'd go and do this but but you could go off and go around the world even not doing anything just just wasting time basically walking mm-hmm. around um which which then brought to mind things like you know games like unreal where you you would have different things that you could do so you could actually do something like that or you could it was one of those games where you could choose how you play the game essentially you could play it this way or you could play it as a group or you could play this and it's it just blew the the gates open when you started being able to have games like that exactly and that's that's just it is at some point companies also began to realize as hey a lot of people play games for escapism let's give them a world you know of course i can i can walk through the landscape of skyrim and I could find myself in a forest that's not too dissimilar from something I could go out of my door and go find myself. And now if I just wanted to walk into the woods or see these majestic mountain peaks that I might not see if I didn't see, you know, the Alps or the Rockies or something like that. But at the same time, am I also going to have the chance to run into a bandit and deliver justice? Am I going to have the chance to stumble upon an old mine or an old dungeon that's brimming with treasure and secrets? And come out, if I make it out of there alive, I come out far richer than I could ever do working a nine-to-five job. Um, There's a lot of draw to that. And even if you're not doing anything, even if you're just lounging and hanging out, well, what if I invited my buddies? And they made up characters. And we just sort of hung out in our own fellowship and did uh, did all these amazing things. And then we could log off for the night and go back to our real worlds and we have these amazing stories. I remember telling a friend of mine years ago, after a session of D&D, I said, you realize some of our best memories are of people and places that never existed. They're only in our heads. And he looked at me for a minute. He's like, "Um, I don't want to have to think about that very long because that's a frightening thought. And I said, yeah, it kind of is. But that's the kind of duality, I think, with games is that you live in the real world and you experience another dimension through an eyes of an avatar someone else who is a lot of things and let's be honest our game avatars don't resemble us it's the herculean ideal it's it's odysseus it's a it's a man or a woman or something else that is fully capable uh even if they find themselves on the back foot they can get out of it they can get fame and fortune and win and friends influence people you could start out as a farmhand today, and a week from now, you have the ear of the king, which is impossible in the real world for all of us. But fan, you know, video games allow us to have that fantasy, which people find extremely, extremely valuable. I'm one of them. Sometimes the real world is too much. And I don't want to make it sound like we all have some kind of like weird uh, post-traumatic stress disorder where we can only cope through video games. That's unhealthy. That, you know, that is that is realm of you need a therapist to assist you. But if you are just there to enjoy, it's a lot better than, you know, going down to the bar and having a few drinks, ruining your liver along the way, um, doing something else dangerous. Uh, not that dangerous stuff isn't fun and good. But for those of us who aren't, you know, willing to hang by our fingernails off the side of a cliff, you know, 100 feet straight down, having a digital avatar to do that is just as good. Yeah. 
Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, a lot of us in our work lives, because work and that side of life has got more intense over the years, you know, where mm-hmm. they cut down on the amount of staff, so you get more work to do, that sort of thing. You need that sort of escapism there sometimes just to relieve all of that. Yeah, in a lot of cases with our work lives, um, unfortunately, a lot of it's become very mundane. Um, you can't, not all of us can be doctors. We can't all be lawyers. We can't all be heart surgeons. Uh, we can't be, you know, lieutenants in the police force. We can't be that. Somebody has to do the paperwork. You know, a lot of life, as you know, is very bureaucratic by nature. And we need, we have a surplus of humans and somebody's just got to do the paperwork or got to do the very mundane tasks. Uh, and when you clock out at the end of the day and you go home and you realize I've just spent, you know, eight hours, nine hours, 10 hours, sometimes 12 hours on the job. My only other option is to go to sleep and then return right back to the work environment, maybe with a few days off here and there. Um, What do I do? I don't have time to, you know, bring a friend up and have a five hour deep conversation. I don't have time to go. I may not have time to go to the gym and get some exercise. I may not have time to, you know, do more than say hello to my spouse, you know, pet the dog, something like that before I'm right back at the the place of employment. Games, again, offer that option where you can live a life of high adventure, at least for a little while before you have to, you know, accept your fate and go back to the the mundanity of, mundanity is probably not a word, (laughs) the mundanity of daily life. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And I'm grateful that it's actually become less of a issue with age in gaming. As I'm sure you remember, games were for children. If, yes. you, if you were still playing a video game after the age of 15, um, then you didn't know what girls were. Why hadn't you gotten involved in a sport? And how is your father allowing this? Um, what's wrong with you, basically? Times have gone on as generations of us have now grown up with gaming, we've gone into our 20s, our 30s, and into our 40s going, you know, and almost some people, some people even in their 50s going, well, wait a minute now, I'm paying my bills. I'm in a stable relationship. I have pets that I can manage. Um, you know, my kids are taken care of if you have children. You know, there's nothing wrong with me maybe spending an hour or two pretending to shoot, um, you know, char- you know, enemy characters on a moon base or, you know, Russian operatives in a, you know, a James Bond sort of era or, you know, dealing with pretending to be a wizard on the hunt for a vampire or something like that. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And a lot of, and gratefully, a lot of generations come up going, okay, this is just part of our lives now. To the point where corporations are starting to look at going, well, wait a minute, we now have multiple fronts in which to gain data and employment and money and we'll just just go, we'll make gaming part of it. We have whole generations of maybe gaming part of their lives. We'll sell them a movie. We'll sell them a nice cold Coke. We'll sell them a burger. And you come on in to our multi-game metaverse. So, sorry, I'm, I'm looking at the time and I'm thinking, crikey, we're getting carried away here, aren't we? Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I, I will talk if I'm allowed. I apologize. I, I love tangents. I'm not sure everybody else does. Hi, this is Katie of Bad Council. With some good counsel, you should keep listening to Marv at Pods Like Us. (laughs) So, um, actually, I'm going to surprise you now. 
Uh, here we go. You will soon be able to see. Let's get out of this. So where do we go? Uh, let's have a look. Uh, share sound. Okay. What happens here? Can you see? You can see my screen now, can't you? Yes, I can see yes. your screen. Right. Okay. So you should be able to now hear this. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Bill from BRBR here. And shout out to Marv for allowing me to jump in here. <laughs> My question for Phil is, what's your guilty pleasure game that you found over you, over the years? Like, not not that it's, you know, just some crazy, crazy popular one, but um, maybe one that's, you know, not entirely liked by the community or anything like that, but something that you found like, wait, I genuinely enjoy playing this game, despite it's, you know, maybe there's some kind of massive dislike for it or anything like that but it's one that she's like still enjoy playing despite maybe it's not everyone's favorites and that's my question for phil thanks for having me on marv there we go all right awesome well good thing i have an answer for this okay so bill and world at large um when i do my show i like to give basically the rundown of any game I, i'm looking at or I'm reviewing or I'm talking about. In the time I've been doing this, I have two separate subdivisions of game, which I talk about. One of them is called We Need to Talk, which is a game that is popular or well-liked in the community that I didn't like. Something has gone wrong. And I can talk about a few of those. But the other one I do is called The Problematic Favorite, where there's a game I love and I can't recommend it because it's got problems and it's got so many problems. Um, I, to, to speak of guilty pleasure game, this is a weird one. Um, I did a, a show recently on it. It is actually a PC game from 2001. It was a game called Arcanum of Steamworks and Magic Obscura. Yeah. The basic plot of the game is what happens when, again, I'm calling back to Tolkien here, what happens when a Tolkien-like fantasy world suddenly goes through an industrial revolution? Where you have elves and dwarves and men and orcs and all these fantasy races are not you know, drawing swords and pulling spells because the steam engine's now a thing. And alchemists have discovered, oh, gunpowder exists. Well, that doesn't mean necessarily that all the elves and dwarves and orcs have faded away. They're there now. They're trying to go, well, you know, we used to be masters of the bow. Now we're masters of the six shooter. And dwarves are like, well, you know, we're not living underground anymore because why would we are? Our minds are flooded and we can have automatons going around doing the digging. We can come up onto the surface and live our lives. But here's the problem. Magic, which is a part of nature, doesn't play well with technology. So I can't get on a steam engine and ride it into town because if I'm a powerful mage, I'm going to cause the steam engine to blow up simply by my existence. Magic and physics don't like each other, but technology loves physics. They don't go together. It's a wonderful game, and it plays not even like a game from 2001. It plays almost like a game from the early 90s, a PC yep. game. It's very muddy in its graphics. It is wonderfully written. There's thousands of lines of dialogue. There's choices, unbelievable amounts of choices. There's an amazing story. But about halfway through, all of that wonderful world-building technology kind of goes away and becomes a very simple, we have to stop the necromancer who's trying to awake in a dark god. And we have to do it in a time limit 
so now we're watching like literally elves and you know 1800s top hats and vests with six years on um trying to have to deal with going out into nature and doing everything you might expect out of a lord of the rings book and it's it kind of begins to fall apart plus the game is very buggy prone to crash and when it's now sold on good old games on gog they package in a fan-made patch because there's an issue when you're trying to save the game uh, the original code for the game has a bug in it that the original developers didn't know about until it was live in, in the world where in about a 50 50 chance when you save your game at some point that save file is going to become corrupted and you're going to be unable to complete the game you're playing you have to start all over and roll the dice yet again and hopefully that wouldn't occur a second time you'd be able to complete the game I love it. It's a wonderful piece of story building, world building. I found it extremely influential in my own art, in my own writing. And I just can't recommend it in 2022 because of the fan-made patches, the bugs, the out-of-date UI, a lot of the the text. People don't want to read that level of game anymore. And the sad part is this was one of three games made by the same studio that made the now hit seminal classic Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines. It was their first game. And then they made another D&D game. And then they made Vampire. And then they went out of business. So they were called Troika, Russian for three of any kind. Ironically, they only made three games before they folded. And Arcanum is a good one. Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines, people love it. There's plenty of YouTubers who played it over the years in long plays and let's plays. I have a copy. And I started playing that when I went, this is kind of kind of not feeling it guys this is there's some good storytelling but i'm a, a creature of the night i now feel a little too overpowered this is too much fan service i don't like it yeah. but arcanum is definitely guilty pleasure yeah so that that's the only voice message that we've had there you go but it's technology there for you <laughs> awesome it was that was cool i love that um but uh, other questions i've had so darren from my guest list pod says what well you've already said actually you've already answered this is because his first part of it is what was your first console we know that was the 2600 mm-hmm. uh, and what is your favorite game or platform of all time platform I am a, I consider myself a platform nomad. I am willing to go wherever the game takes that I like. Yep. My all-time absolute favorite game, the top of my list every time, is Resident Evil 2. And I explain why. Resident Evil 2 is, obviously, it's the, the sequel to the first Resident Evil, or Biohazard, depending on where in the world you are. And they moved out of the, the first game's idea of this haunted mansion that's full of zombies that has the surprise laboratory where a biohazard has been developed. And they move into the nearby city of Raccoon City, where the owners of the megacorp conglomerate pharmaceutical company who have been building this biological weapons system, um, it actually gets out into the city. And now it goes from being a haunted mansion in the woods to a George Romero, Dawn of the Dead, full-on zombie apocalypse. And you play one of two characters. You play a young woman named Claire, who's the sister of one of the survivors of the first game. And you play a rookie policeman named Leon Kennedy. You can pick either one. In fact, you can tell their stories back and forth and in tandem. So it's a lot of replayability. But it happens to be when it came out in 1998, Leon canonically in that game is 21 years of age. I happen to be 
21 years of age when that game came out. And I was thinking about going into the police service myself. I was in college as an art student. I'm thinking, I don't know if this is working out. Maybe I should do something for my community. And Leon spoke to me. You know, yeah. I mean, he's regarded in the community as kind of a lunkhead. He's he's a lovable doof um, or what they call a himbo now. Um, but he spoke to me. He was there. I could have that could have been me in a situation. Fantastical, of course, because biological weapons, we know, don't turn people. They, they don't raise the dead into, you know, cannibalistic monsters. But in a, a terrible situation, this could easily have been me. I could have, you know, I could have been this character. Uh, his associate for the game is Claire. She's 19. I had friends at college who were 19. This just friends. You know, this could have been us. This, you know, I felt very connected to these characters. And admittedly, I'm going through a police station where an absolute nightmare has occurred, a complete massacre, and going back in, um, being chased by monsters and whatnot, and finally getting into the, you know, the the nest below the city where the the evil corporation does its dirty work, and delivering unto them justice. I'm very much a a very, you know, I want to, you know, I want to do right by humanity in the world. And, you know, the concept of justice means a lot to me, making sure that everyone's fair. But at some point, if someone gets off the track, uh, we got to step on them because yeah. there's a lot of people that get away with way too much. And uh, I just, it, that game spoke to me so much. I, I've replayed it endlessly. I, pro- I played it almost to the disc broke. Um, I knew I was almost to the level of like speed running it. I knew where all the important items were. I could ignore certain things and was able to watch my time go down from like an eight hour game to a five hour game to a two hour game, two and a half hours because I'd run through it so much. I knew everything that has remained my top favorite. People go, well, why do you like the sequel so much? Because I thought the sequel was better. The writing was better. It was far more expanded. The characters were more likable to me than the, the group that came out of the first game. And even, you know, the games that came after, I did better with Resident Evil 4, which was Leon again. And the later sequels, 7, 8, not so much 1 and 3, 5 and 6, you know, there, there's a lot to it. So the answer for that is Resident Evil 2. Yeah. But what you said there about the second game being better than the first game, it's sort of a bit like, I think that later versions, I, I don't know if you, you, you do driving games or not, but I think later versions of Burnout are better than the first Burnout game. Because the first Burnout game was glitchy. It had a lot of issues with the game. And then they ironed out the the issues in the game in in it, where the later games, like the third Burnout, I think, I can't remember the title of it, is probably my favourite of them, actually. Yeah. I can't mm-hmm. remember which one the third one is. Oh, yeah, I don't remember either. Um, it, but the, the subtitle was of that one. But yeah, that's the thing, is that the later sequels usually get better because the developers have ironed out the bugs. They know what they want out of these characters. They know what they want out of the world. They're continuing to develop the ideas. Even if you've got a new writing team in there, they can take the notes from the old ones and make something new out of it. It just It's better when you have the original writers on hand to say, okay, now we know what we're doing. Let's do X, Y, and Z. But that's not always possible. So I think sometimes in a lot of cases, sequels end up being better than the originals. Absolutely. Um, oh, I don't know whether you'd let's have a look. Let's see if we can answer this one. Ethan, who I will say is young. Okay. Well, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give this caveat. Ethan does, uh, he does the show, um, fans on the run, which is basically he chats to fans of Beatles and talks okay. to them about their fanship. So he says, and this shows his age here. So 
What's your take on the terrifying sound test screen on Sonic CD for the Sega CD? Oh, my goodness. Um, my take on it is that's an odd thing that we used to have in games where you yeah. can go into the option screen and just test the game's sound. It's um, a holdover, I think, from the debugging and programming days. Now, occasionally, and he's right, there would be a sound that would be produced that you're sitting there going, have they just opened a portal to hell behind me and I'm not aware of it? I mean, like, oh my <laughs> Lord, something is wrong here. But it just, it, it was what they can only do with so many channels for sound, um, especially the old games who only had like four or five or six channels sound. They had to do the best they could. Sometimes it produced unintended noises. And I think some of them they left in as just Easter eggs for potential people who were bored and were clicking around in there just to say, hey, let's scare the pants off them or let's do something <laughs> fun or let's, you know, leave a little, like, you know, poke at them a little bit by like giving them something to something to laugh at, something to find. It's especially if you're somebody who has issues like audio issues, like, you know, your your brain translates certain sounds in a way that horrifies you. Um, it can be quite the shock in some cases. Other folks would be totally not bothered. Like, oh, that was... It's like if you had like a you know, Casio keyboard and you realize your cat decided to walk across the keys and hit every single one across the way. Um, cat doesn't know what it's doing. It's just using it as part of its cat highway. And all of a sudden it's producing, you know, Don's Macrobe here. And you're like, oh Lord, what's going on? I think it's just, I, my take is that there are fun little Easter eggs, but sometimes there are unintended consequences. Yeah. And when I was asking you that, it reminded me that playing the uh, the burnout games that I've already mentioned, you get mm -hmm. that on the PlayStation Two when you when you start those, it mm -hmm. will do the sound and the vision thing to try and work out what you're watching it on, and that's what it's yeah. about, what what you'd be using it for. But it is a holdover from back in those days, because you know, I mean, we used to plug the old computers into our television sets. Yeah, exactly. I remember back in the day when, you know, again, when TVs only had three to four channels and like literally you would plug the old console into the system and go, you know, switch in the back saying, are you using channel three? Are you using channel four? Which of these essentially dead channels um, are you going to sacrifice? Now, for us, it was like the happened to be the channel that was PBS was on public broadcasting system. So I'm not watching Sesame Street or three to one contact right now because I'm too busy playing Mario Brothers um, or you you know you lose one of the other major channels like nbc cbs abc that eventually your parents if you were on the, the tv in the front of the house in the, in the living room your parents are going to go uh no i want to watch the news or i want the game get off because you're on you're on one of my channels but yeah that's that's another thing at the time we don't have anymore now you just have an hdmi cable you hook it up to whichever of the three in the back of the tv that you want and off you go that's true so I've, so I think we've already covered. Do we need to cover the top five games of all time, or could you not pick five? I can pick five, but a couple of them, if they're franchises, I might have more than one answer in that okay. one. Um, I'll try to make it simple. Like I said, number one, Resident Evil Two. Uh, number two is a game from the SNES period called Act Racer, and that one is I covered it. It's very one of my earlier episodes. First one I was proud of. And it's, it's a weird combination of simulation game, like a city building sim with platformer. Mm -hmm. 
where essentially you're God, you're God, the the yeah. the Most High, Jesus Christ, all of that sort of thing. Um, they don't call him that in the game because it was made in Japan. They were worried that if it went over to America, they would have letters and that people would protest, which is why in the actual Japanese game files, your enemy is Satan. But okay. in the American version, he's called Tanzra. And your job is to float around the world like your angel wakes you up after a thousand years of slumber since your last battle with Tanzra and says, hey, your people are in trouble. The world's almost empty. You need to fix this. And you'll go down, you'll fight a level through, you'll kill a boss, you'll platform, you'll jump through, you'll kill monsters. And then the game breaks to a simulation where you essentially rebuild a section of the world, townsfolk and whatnot. Um, eventually, this, it opens up and oh, the real monster comes out and says, oh, here's the real boss of the area and why the area was suffering under its effects and you have to go kill it. So you do that. And then you go through like six different areas and doing this over and over. And at the end of the game, you boss rush. You fight all of those bosses again. And then you fight the final boss, Tanzra. But the game stuck out to me because, you know, there's a lot of games that did platform and stuff like that. But it was a game that made me question my beliefs, strangely enough. I was raised in a very Catholic household. Um, I was at the age when I was playing it where I was starting to question my belief system. And the game does very something very strange in its, its final period. You've gone through the whole world helping your people. They're, you're faithful. And towards the end of the game, your angel begins to question, saying, well, wait a second, what happens when they don't need us anymore? We've defeated Tanzer. We've killed Satan. There, there's no, there is no enemy anymore. What happens when they don't need us? And you get to the very end, the very last temple, because you're doing a tour of the world to see all of you know all your faithful, and the last temple's empty. Your followers are gone. They have their lives. They're off on it. And the angel goes, okay, the thing, you know, basically the thing has happened that we were, I was worried about. Let's just go. And God leaves. And the world is left to its own devices. And I kind of realized as the years have gone on, like, that very much, I think, was the, the catalyst for me beginning to think about well, what happens beyond, you know, what if, you know, what if there is no afterlife? What if there is, you know, you know, what if there is, was a creator, but the creator left and we are all we have. Like, yep. there's a reason we have to be civil and nice to each other and try to work together as a world, because we're not 100% sure that there's something waiting for us, a paradise or a eternal torment or anything. There may be nothing. This may be the only shot we got. So I know it's strange the game from like 1991, but have that kind of like give a, you know, a young kid deep thoughts like that, but it did. And that's why it's one of my favorites. Now here's where I get a little thorny because the next one I would say would be both Dead Space 1 and 2. They would be tied for number three. Okay. One of the great horror franchises of the middle 2000s that took the concept of the haunted house and put it in space. Yeah. Uh, very much in the, the vein of Ridley Scott's Alien. Now, when I was I laugh when I say this because the game was sold to me when I purchased the first one. I actually found it because of um, the Escapist um, internet show and their resident in-house uh, curmudgeon Yahtzee Croshaw, and he hated the game. Yeah, and I figured at that point, like any game he hates, I'll probably enjoy because so, <laughs> I'm not to be contrarian. It's just. I appreciate what his what he does as a reviewer and that his take is initially because obviously he's not American to begin with. I appreciate that his take is coming in from someone going, look, I don't have this American nostalgia you do. I'm just going to give it to you straight as it is. And I'm like, OK, I absolutely appreciate your viewpoint. 
And now I'm like, let's, let's hear your side of things. But I went on this one. I said, the more he's talking about this, the more this actually sounds like something I'd like. So I went and bought a copy and I was absolutely blown away. It was essentially, I've been sold on the idea that it was Ridley Scott's alien with the, the, the first concept of Silent Hill, the sort of dark and brooding, twisty, turny nature of things. What we got was James Cameron's Aliens, the sequel, mixed with Resident Evil 4, which right. Resident Evil 4 has begun to be the like the shoot 'em up bang bang portion of that one. I loved it either way. I love it either way. It was an amazing romp of the game where I felt, you know, and I'm weird about my, my video games, my horror games. I don't like feeling disempowered. I don't like having to hide under a bed or hide in a concert and hope for the monster to go away. I'm the kind of guy that's going, well, if I'm going to go down, I'm going to pick up the nearest heavy object and I'm going to make sure I beat the, you know, whatever out of this thing before I die. Yep. And of course, with your character in that game, he's an engineer, he's not a soldier. So he uses what he knows, um, space chainsaws and laser cutters and whatnot to blow these monsters apart. And I'm like, this is me. This is them. And the second game after it amplified that. There was more. I absolutely loved it. And then the third game came out and boy, they flushed it right down the toilet. But that's for a different time. So I always consider the first two games and the third game maybe never happened. Uh, number four on my list would be, again, going back to the SNES days um, and the PlayStation 1 in this case is Final Fantasy VI and Final Fantasy VII. Yeah. Final Fantasy VI came to the States as Final Fantasy III. It's very confusing how they changed the numbers up there, but its official numbering is six, where you play a young woman who finds out that she's half-human, and you go on this world-spanning adventure you know, to collect all these magical pieces, and the bad guy who runs the evil empire, he assassinates his, his leader, and he takes over this guy called Kefka, who looks like the, you know, the traditional Harlequin mask and everything like that. Well, about halfway through the game, your party fails. And he ends up causing the apocalypse. And your party then, the second half of the game is your party getting back together after being scattered all over the world and realizing the world's been ruined, but their job's not over because this, you know, Kefka has attained godhood. And they're now the only people who can stop him because they're so powerful. So you have to basically go forth and kill God. Seven is the more is the most famous of them because this is where you know final fantasy moves away from true fantasy or in six it had gone steampunk fantasy and now is full futuristic cyberpunk yeah where you start out in this massive industrial city there's cars there's motorcycles there's energy reactors you have to worry about but you're still there's guns and everything but your main character is this punk kid with spiked blonde hair who carries this um essentially this entire dinner table as a sword there's no person, there's no way a human being could lift this, let alone some pipe cleaners for arms, but that's very Japanese aesthetic. But he goes on this long quest to be the most edgy person in the world, collects all these friends, then realizes that, you know, not so much we begin to realize that, you know, this is Cloud's journey, so much as Cloud lied, lied about who he was. He's not a soldier, he was a punk kid. Who tried to be uh, tried to be a good guy and he bombed out. He was a, he was a little known serviceman, but he knew somebody who he looked up to was very cool, and that person was killed by the Empire's hero. And he picked up a sword and said, "Well, I'm now going to assimilate this entire you know dead hero's persona and go after this guy." And the rest of the world who's you know trying to be freedom fighters and trying to save the planet, you know, very timely again from you know our own excesses and destruction begins to realize that uh, this kid's been fleecing us this entire time, but we still have to use him to 
destroy this guy who's going to wipe out humanity because he just wants the planet to himself and his ancient, you know, mother by genetic experimentation to return the planet to nature, meaning anyone I don't like. Both of them had, you know, very good stories. I love them. People, you know, nostalgia go, well, they're both overblown. It's like, ah, bleh, overblown. Yeah, uh-uh. You're just being contrarian in some cases, be contrarian. Um, but number five, I think, would almost be Elder Scrolls V Skyrim. Yeah. Again, despite the fact that it's buggy, just buggy and broken and messy, the problem is, and the, the main story is lame. It's, it's very underutilized. But the problem is everything else around it can be so much fun. And it's just a fun game to go into a world, even if it's like, you know, essentially Viking fiction and just go into this world and just do good things, explore and find little bits. And maybe because there's so much packed into it, you know, this may be the hundredth time you're playing the game, but you may have missed something in a direction you never thought to go before. You fall off a cliff, you notice something, you finally go there. Oh, this whole section opened up that I didn't know anything about. And you just get to go and mess around. You don't have to follow the main plot. You have to follow any plot. You can write your own story. And that I think is, is kind of my, really my top five. That's great. I'm agent Scott and I'm Cam, the provocateur. And we're from the spy hards movie podcast. That's right. And you are listening to pods like us, the podcast that has a license to thrill. So going from the game in though. So, um, what was the actual impetus then or the inspiration that, that made you decide to actually start making a show all about this? Well, funny thing. Um, I have been, all my life I've been an artist. Uh, obviously, a little kid, it's hard to count because we all, we all draw little kids. Yeah. But at some point, I realized that I was getting better and that I liked art a little too much. Uh, most people drops off, they stop doing it. So at some point, um, I decided to do something with art. Uh, I had a cousin, a cousin of mine who's a very talented artist himself. Um, we would have competitions because we would like sit through and read comic books, but we would read like X-Men and Spider-Man. We compare our stuff to like Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld and, and Todd McFarlane from back in the day. And we tried to copy their stuff and emulate it. He's much more talented than I am. Um, but, and, you know, I have to, I have to tell the story and I get a little real here. So I apologize. Um, when I was 17, uh, I was getting near the end of my high school years and the whole premise of my life had been building up to was taking over my father's business. The problem is I was a very average student. I'm a terrible mathematician. Uh, I love history. I love science. I'm not good like the formulas and stuff like that. He's an engineer. He built this whole thing. It was so to be expected I was going to take over the business. And he was going to teach me how to run the business. A lot of people would say, well, obviously that makes sense. you got a whole job lined up for you. But things have been going on badly in the background with my my own family. And I'm an only child, so I had like no sibling to commiserate with here. Um, by the age of 17, I was strongly considering taking my life. Okay. And I had made a plan. And I was going to do it. And then one day, my school counselor, as she was supposed to do as part of her job, took everyone aside and said, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to go work after school? Do you want to go to college? Do you want to go to university? What's your plan? And I, I, and I figured, well, it doesn't matter what answer I say, because I'm not going to be here in a couple of months once this is over. So I went to her office and she said, well, what do you like to do? And I said, I'd like to draw. 
And she said, you know, you can go to school for that, right? And I sat there in abject silence for about five minutes. I think she thought I had like a seizure or something like that. It, literally, and it's going to sound stupid, no one had ever approached me before and said, you know that there's a place for this. Because yeah. I'd always been told as growing up as a kid, no, I mean, that that's cute. You draw. Grow out of it. Grow up. You have the, you have the real world ahead of you. Same thing with gaming. You know, yep. grow up now. And I went, wait a second. I can do something with this. And I ended up having to, you know, she helped me through it. And I spoke with my high school art teacher. And it turns out actually also my high school English teacher, because he, this is a man who was, you know, he knew I couldn't diagram a sentence to save my life, but I was a very avid reader. So we would sit for hours and we'd chat about books and stuff like this. He like even had a chainmail shirt that he would wear when he would do available for his classes. It was amazing. Yep. And he gave me some writing tips and all of this came through. And um, I went on to college. It was very late. Um, so I didn't go to the prestigious American university. I went to our local college, but it, they had an art program and I went there and it essentially bought me time to, to decide what I want to do. Do I want to keep going? And I got into college and I very luckily, the person who was head of the illustration department, um, he's still alive. I love him to death. He was giving himself a second father for me. Um, he knew what I wanted to do. Thank God. And he had been an illustrator and a painter for so long. He kind of took me under his wing and he realized that I must have been in, in dire straits. Uh, he probably spent more time with me than really he should have with other students in, in all fairness. Um, but he, he knew where I wanted to go. I wanted to go with the comic industry. I decided that I wanted to be the next guy drawing Spider-Man or Superman or something like that. And um, I did. I went through college. Uh, obviously, I'm still here. Um, but I'd always been a creative person. And the problem is, of course, unfortunately, I was never successful in getting into the industry. The farthest I ever got is I got an interview with DC Comics several years ago, and I got things went so badly, I like fled the interview in, in panic. Um, but I'd always tried through the years to keep working on my art, working on my style, uh, maybe eventually just do comics on my own. And eventually I started writing. So I've always, you know, I've written a, written a couple of novels, self-published. They're not very good. Please don't look them up, folks. I promise you they, they just leave them in the dustbin of history. But I'm also a writer. You know, I, I, it galls me to death that I have no musical ability. But my artistic talent seems to be either writing or drawing. So those are where I focus on. I definitely have a style. And a lot of the influences of my gaming career have come together in my own art. And they've come together in my own writing. And eventually, during the pandemic, I thought, well, there's a lot of people streaming games around the world. I love a lot of what the YouTubes are do YouTubers are doing. I love what the Twitch streamers are doing. I would like to take all these old games that I've played through the years that meant so much to me and talk about them. And my idea was I was going to start streaming on Twitch. And the first game I was going to stream is Skyrim. Because a lot of people have done it. Yeah, I know around the world have done it. And people are like, ah, it's blasé. But... I want to tell why I thought it was such a good game as we went through the world. Well, so I started up a Twitch channel. I got OBS installed. I got all these mods. I plugged my headset into my computer and I started talking while I started streaming on Twitch. And about five minutes in, I had a tickling in the back of my brain. that says, check your voice level. Something, something doesn't feel right. So I did. I stopped the recording. I stopped going live and I played back my recording. And I realized that I could hear the game audio but nothing else. Okay. I'd been talking to the wall for five straight minutes 
one of my cats was nearby. I can see him pick up his head and look at me like, eh, but, you know, in that way animals do when they look at us, they don't understand what we're doing, they twitch their head to the side. I've been talking to the wall for five straight minutes, and I realized that my very expensive computer, the audio in jack doesn't work. So that was the end of my streaming career. I'm like, oh, well, that sucks. But at the same time, a buddy of mine had gotten me into doing a little bit of, got me into podcasts. And we had done a very, very small show where he and I would talk to all things D&D. Yep. And I figured, well, we were going to get together and make it more of a thing, but then the pandemic happens. So we can't be together in the same room. It's too dangerous. We'd done a couple of things where we did through phone and whatnot. But I said to myself, well, wait a minute. I still have the desire to do this. I am just going to make a podcast where I talk about the games I loved. And I'm just going to put it out there in the world for free. Uh, it is what it is. You know, I've said before, I doubt anyone's going to find out about me. Nobody's going to listen to this. They're going to hear a weird man, you know, another white man with a podcast rambling into the universe. And that'll be it. I'll say my piece and I'll be done. So I did. And they were short because one of my, my uh, sort of inspirations is a man on YouTube called Noah Gervais. He takes an entire series of a game franchise and he does these long three, four, five hour videos where he discusses all the ins and outs of the game. And I figured I want to do something like that because he's doing historic work. So I wrote up the first game and my first one was the original Castlevania. Yep. And I said, okay, I've got a couple pages. I'm going to be here 10 minutes. At least this is going to be awesome. I go to record it and I come in at four minutes, 58 seconds. And I've said everything. And I realized, uh oh. I've made a massive miscalculation, but I'm going to put it out there anyway, because I, I kind of said all I have to say. These old 8-bit games, there's not a lot to them, you know, I'm going to put it out there. And so I did. So every week, every Wednesday, I would put out a new one. And then, of course, I had enough games where I would move to a different console. And um, my, my friends listened. And that was about it. One day, I realized that my numbers are starting to jump up, and I'm like, wow, my friends must really like what I'm doing because it's like four or five people listening to my show has now ballooned to eight or nine and then 10 and then a few more. Not that I have is, I don't have thousands of listeners. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. a very small show, but suddenly on Twitter one day, I get this random message from another podcaster who does what I do. I said, Hey, I happen to stumble across your show. I really like what you're doing, man. I'm going to, I'm going to get some information out there. Maybe someday you can jump in on my show. And I'm like, uh-oh. I've actually got an audience. I now have total strangers who I don't know somewhere in the world yep. have begun listening to my show. I'm a thing. This is a thing. Oh, my God. I've, I've, I've got a thing. I finally have my creative outlet that I've been struggling for for decades now to like the disappointment of myself, the disappointment of my wife, unfortunately, uh, in some cases to, and I love my wife and her patience is, is for me. And, and these goofy endeavors is, yeah. is, is very wonderful. I'm, I'm, you know, I love her to death, but I finally had an audience. So I've kind of become a, a small one, but a very minor institution. And it all started because my audio jack on my computer didn't work, <laughs> which is why I'm not a Twitch streamer. But there's something about the show, though, that is that, that I mean, it grabs me because I know that I listen to the show. And when the, the thing is that you talk about your experience with the games and mm -hmm. what the games were to you and you you bring memories. I mean, I remember you were talking about oh, I'm trying to remember now, but you 
you explained about what your life was at the time. And this is when you came out as well, when you were talking about the, the writing of the books and you've not been able to get them published in this, that, and the yeah. other. And there's that sort of thing there. There's the honesty there and and that, that, that sort of like pulled me in because it made mm-hmm. me think of times and what games have meant to me when I've played them, you know, because while we've talked, I've thought about it's not it's not in the same vein of sort of game at all. But I remember as a really young kid, my my mum and me used to play a game called Bubble Bobble when I was a kid, which was the two, dinos- the two dinosaurs. Yeah. But the memory of that is the fact that we used to play that together. And it's that together time there. And there's all these memories that you, you have with gaming. Like mm-hmm. when you said about people say, when you said about older people saying, oh, they're for younger people and this, that, and the other. I actually remember my stepdad with mm-hmm. the, the old, the Hobbit game that used to be yes. on the Commodore 64. Mm-hmm. And I remember an incident where we went to sleep and he was playing it on the Commodore 64 and then when I woke up for the toilet six hours later, he's still playing the same game. So there's all these memories that, mm-hmm. and that's why I think that it it sort of catches those people that have caught that caught onto your show is mm-hmm. because it it's those people that have these memories that are like, yeah, I've this has happened with me, or that the games have got this sort of thing attached to them. Yeah, I think the one you're referencing for me is my Alan Wake episode yes. uh, um, made by, I believe, um, I think they're in Sweden, uh, Sweden's Remedy Entertainment. Um, the guy who happens to be the head of the studio actually used to model when they came out the Max Payne games. He was Max Payne. He, he like literally digitally photographed himself, the lead uh, writer. At the, I forget his name at the moment. So I apologize. If he's listening, sir, I apologize. Sam um, Lake. Yeah, Sam Lake. Thank you. And um, he, they wrote this game, and it's obviously about a, a writer living in the United States who's a Stephen King knockoff. In fact, the game opens up with a Stephen King quote from his on-writing book, which I've read. And he goes to this nightmare scenario in the Pacific Northwest. Well, I was playing at a time where I was also writing. Things weren't going well. Obviously, I, had, I self-published, and they tell you self-publishing is the worst thing you can do. It's obviously you're a hack unless you have a random house or a tour or some kind of major publisher behind you because they've already vetted you as a good writer, as a quality piece of work. If you're producing it on your own, it's obvious garbage, despite the fact that there are hundreds of successful writers out there who do their own stuff. And, you know, that, that was a, you know, me coming to terms of realizing, obviously I'm never going to be a professional. This is all just going to have to be nights and weekends, something I do, which was a knife in my heart because that's what had kept me alive and going for so long was being able to create because, you know, my wife and my wife have asked me, why don't you just create and enjoy it? For me, creating something doesn't feel right unless I share it, unless I share it with the world. And it's just realizing that I've hit the end of the road. I'm apparently no good at this. Everyone who ever said I was terrible at this and I should stop, maybe they were right. I've had family, I've had friends, I've had girlfriends, you know, occasionally I'll get a complete stranger that says, I like something you did, but the people closest to me often were the ones saying, you should stop now. This is bad. This isn't going to go anywhere. Okay. All right. I get it. And just so happened when I was writing that, you know, I was, I was memorizing, you know, going back on that, when I was talking about the game at the time, we had also adopted an animal off the street and, um, 
he was my buddy through all this. And he eventually dies of cancer. I uh, apologize. But the night before, like two days before he died, I had this very strange visceral dream that I remember where he and I were running for our lives through the, through the forest of Alan Wake. And he runs into this wall of light. and He's lit up because light plays a big part of Alan Wake. And just before I hit the wall of light, I wake up. I literally, I'm in my bed. I, I sit up. My wife is there asleep. Uh, our cats at the time um, are there. They're asleep at the foot of the bed. And only he wakes up and looks at me. Kind of like, yeah, that, that was that. Yeah. And he goes back to sleep. Two days later, he passes away of lung cancer. And, and then I never forgot that because that's why I ended with that one. I've had a couple of people come back to me and said, I've never cried at a video game podcast before in my life, but you did it. I'm like, I don't know if that's a good thing or not. <laughs> um, but another one where I had I had to explain um, Silent Hill 2. In fact, today, literally Konami, after 10 years of silence, announced that they're remaking Silent Hill 2. It's one of the grandfathers of survival horror. It's one of the supposed greatest games of all time. Thousands of people around the world love this game. I played it in 2001, and I had a much different reaction. I had a very visceral, angry, hateful reaction about this game. And I didn't understand why at the time. It has taken me years and even some therapy to figure out that here's the problem. What that game treats as its major story points didn't sit with me because while not so much the main character, James Sunderland, who has to deal with the fact that his wife was abusive to him and he ended up murdering her, she died of an illness and the town was punishing him. A lot of the side characters have gone through what I've gone through. I'm not a small man. I have spent most of my life being shamed for being overweight. One of the side characters is overweight. His whole thing is he was bullied and eventually he loses his mind. One of the female characters has was a, you know, a, a, you know, she had been sexually abused through her childhood. I was also, I'm also a survivor of sexual abuse not by my parents or anything, by someone else. I, I won't go into it. Same. Um, and it was played off very flippantly. Um, there were other things in the game that, you know, as I said before, the game's catharsis is still a video game. So they expect that you're going to be shooting monsters. You do not get catharsis. You do not get therapy. You do not get treatment at the end of a gun, the barrel of a gun. You have to address the issue within yourself. And if there's nothing you can do legally about the matter, if things are, if too much time has gone on, then you have to learn how to do this without, you know, taking out a firearm and shooting somebody or shooting an imaginary monster. But they played it as a video game. They, they, they played off so much of it as very flippant, very video gamey. And that's why I realized I'm very, very angry about this to the point where I've never played any other game in the series. And I love the first one. And, you know, I, people don't understand. I've explained this to other podcasters who've covered the game have said, well, we love this game. It's such a hallmark. We don't, I mean, we understand your point of view, but we don't agree with it. And I have to go, that's okay, guys. You don't have to agree with anything I say. That's why I front load everything saying everything I do is opinion. Yep. And we don't have to agree. We can live in a world and be, wonderful neighbors and friends and whatnot but we don't have to agree with everything and that's one of those games where it's a we need to talk kind of game where i have this reaction but it's important that i tell these stories it's important that i to me that i explain what has gone on 
the history behind the game and then my memories of it, why this is stuck with me for good, for bad, for indifferent, why so much of this is important. Now, luckily, most games come across as pretty good or I love the game, but I can't recommend it. There have been a few games, though, where I've had to sit there and go, this this is wrong for a lot of reasons, whether it's bug fixes, whether it's the way something was treated, whether it was, you know, uh, characters are in there now that are extremely racist or extremely homophobic or something like that. And we can't, it's just not acceptable uh, or something gets played very badly. And occasionally I have to just realize that not too many people have done it. Thankfully it's maybe because I'm small, but occasionally when you poke the bear in the games community and you, you, you slaughter a sacred cow like that, there's going to be a firestorm coming. The fans are, are going to come with a reckoning. And so far, I've gotten maybe a light slap across the cheek for not having, you know, the same opinion as the gamers TM, as Stephanie Sterling would say. Um, But one of these days, I know something's coming. I'm going to have a contrarian opinion about something. And I'm really going to, it's going to be coming. I don't know where, I don't know when, but I know it's coming. It's kind of waiting for that other shoe to drop so much. But yet I do it anyway, because I find value in it, not only as a creative endeavor, but to really kind of historically engage and get the information out there about these games. So do you write every episode? Do you write a script before you actually start doing each episode? Yes, I do. Every episode has a script that is attached to it. The very earliest episodes are about two page scripts. Uh, the later episodes, the most current ones where I'm talking for between 15 and 20 minutes, those are about five to six pages as far as scripting material. Uh, what I do usually is I go in, I just write the draft. Um, most of it survives to what I want it to be. I have to come back for the editing, obviously spelling, spelling errors, punctuation. And there are times is, did what I say make any kind of sense? And then I have to re-edit, uh, reword. Uh, sometimes I expand, sometimes I shrink ideas, um, but that's kind of my whole thing. So every single one of them has a script. I hope at the end of it, when I'm done with the show, I still have an, at least another year to go material. I am going to publish these scripts. So they will be out in the public domain. People can pick mm. up a copy and see where originally thought. Because sometimes in the script from where I'm reading it, I don't. the word that comes out of my mouth is different from what's on the script. And this is different from... Phil obviously flubbed the line, but kept it in there and kept going um, because my editing process is terrible. I'm a terrible editor. I, I've, you know, the very first couple games that I made scripts for, I've recorded them and I figured, okay, editing can't be too hard. I'm going to do it. I annihilated the original audio to the point where right. it was so butchered, I had to re-record them. So my whole thing and why I'm short is because I'm literally doing this in one take until my voice gives out or something like that. And sometimes if I blow a line so badly, I will actually stop the recording, wipe the whole thing out, and just start over. It's the worst way to possibly do it, but it works for me. Occasionally, flood lines will get in there because, again, going back to Mr. Noah Trefay, he, in a lot of cases, before he got his current editor, I think, a lot of, you know, if he mangled a word or a line, he would just repeat it and keep going. And I said, well, I can do that. It's not so bad. Um, it's very humanizing. Yep. I feel it's just, just so I'm very, I'm not perfect. And here we go. Uh, I just try and make sure that I don't totally mangle something. Uh, invariably, 
invariably I have, I'm sure a few people have, you know, like, oh God, this guy sucks. Like, what, what are we doing here? <laughs> I, I've blown a few things pretty good, but I'm like, um, I'm now 15 minutes in, my voice is about to give out. I'm just going to power through to the end uh, and let the chips fall where they may. But usually it's not too bad. And, you know, generally I think I'm able to get my point across and be able to read the script verbatim without too many either ad-libs, corrections, or mangling of the English language. Well, you're virtually where where most of most seasoned podcasters end up being, because I know that when I started, because I, I I go back to go back to being a musician and a, and a sound engineer back in the day. So I mean, I'm used to the mixing and things like that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but I've actually found that over time, I started doing a lot of that. And I've actually got a bit more relaxed now because I, I'd listened back to old episodes where I've done excessive editing and I've thought, people sound like robots. If you edit too much, it sounds too perfect and there's no human quality to it. So in a mm-hmm. sense, that human human quality is a better thing. Yeah. No, and I, I definitely appreciate it. Now that I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I hear people, I'm like, no, this is the way it's supposed to be. If something comes out, let them talk. Just let them talk. It's better to have that. It's just because I'm doing it essentially in one go and I'm following a script that my episodes are short. I've actually got a lot of people saying, I'm actually kind of glad because in a lot of cases, in you know, a lot of podcasts, you'll get somebody who rambles on for three or four hours and they'll tell you about the deli sandwich they had that day and their buddies will tell you about, you know, what kind of beer they're drinking, stuff like that. And that's all wonderful and good. I'm, fine with that but i feel like i'm cheating people if i just go on and on and on pointlessly i want to give them the information and sort of let them decide for themselves if there's something that they want to hunt down about this game anything i've said is worth their time if they'll have the same experience i did or not probably not but in any case so i want to give them a nice tight package of information historical reference my thoughts on and i also call my show kind of a lowbrow philosophy uh, as much as I'm, I love philosophy, I'm a terrible philosopher myself, but I try to give thoughts on certain things along the way and just kind of put it all together around a game idea and just let people see what they want to do, see how they want to handle it. So all the subject choices then are based on game, well, obviously based on games, because you've you've done it where you did a pattern of them where you did a certain amount were from one one game's console, mm-hmm. then you did one from did the load from another console, and then you've gone on to another. So how do you decide what you're going to talk about? Well, what I do is like obviously these are the games that meant a lot to me. They they stuck with me for whatever reason. I started doing them chronologically simply to make sure that I have enough working memory of the game I think I remember to get it out there so that's why i started with the nes first because that's my oldest memories and i actually uh how i do with my research for the show is i initially started by going on wikipedia and like literally listing entire consoles that i had like all the games that came out for it and i sat there going typing on my computer okay don't recognize that don't oh i had that game let me put it on the list I had that game let me put it on the list then i became the process of what do i actually remember about this and there are a lot of them went, you know, it was a hop and bop, a little fun game, but I don't really have a lot to say. And then I, I removed them and I came down to the list I had. 
a short list of NES games that I went, okay. Then I moved on to the Super Nintendo. And I moved on to the N64, Playstations. And then I broke into PC gaming. And then I remember the days of the arcades where, you know, they had the big, you know, cabinet arcade machines. And then the modern consoles. I'm trying to get them all where I remember them. Because I realized eventually memories fade. In a lot of cases, what we remember of memories is merely the last time we remembered that thing. So it's not just nostalgia, but it's the patina of time has gone on. A lot of other things have been on my mind. Do I truly remember this the way I do? Especially when I don't have the game anymore to play. Yeah, I could hunt it down and emulate it. But that's asking me for time I may not have. So I'm running off of this is why I do it. And I've sprinkled in some of the games, some PC releases when I wanted to do what I call a season. And, you know, I was short a couple episodes, so I added something in from a different area. And I addressed a few things, but it's kind of those were also floating around at the time period I was playing this particular console generation or something like that. So that's kind of how I do it. So Wikipedia is my friend in a lot of cases because it can give me a little bit of a jump start and then I can go oh okay but I remember something else and here I'll add that in or maybe I remember things a little bit differently and I'll throw that in um there have been a couple lost episodes where I looked up a game and I said I don't remember anything that this article is talking about one of the games I, I've had lost episode was on called the game called Xenogears yeah. which is you know a Japanese uh, game where you essentially you're a giant fighting robot but the pilots can get out and they go through this world against defeating an evil empire and you'll get like strange monsters and with soldiers and things like that. And I remember being very fun. It had a hefty story. And I, you know, so I look it up in the Wikipedia page and I'm beginning to read through whoever wrote the article is talking about, you know, it's Jungian thought and it's Nietzsche's philosophy. And they're dealing with, this is obviously a proto-Nazi regime and all this allegory. And I'm sitting here going, um, wait a minute. I don't remember any of this that you're talking about. I certainly yeah. don't remember. I'm a, you know, I've read Nietzsche. I don't remember anything about Nietzsche's philosophy in this game. I don't remember anything about Jung or Freud and, you know, the psychology behind it. What I remember is it was a fighting game about mechs that had a hefty story. And at some point there was this pink bunny monster that you had as a party member that suddenly grew to the size of a 40 meter tall mech and you could use him to fight. And I went, I can't write the script in all honesty, because what they're describing is not the game I remember. And yep. what the game I remember is fragmented. So that went by the wayside. So I had to take one off my list. And there have been a couple of others I've come across the years in Super Nintendo and the NES where I'm like, there's just not enough here to talk about. But what I plan to do is once I get all the mainline games that I'm doing done, I'm going to go back and I'm going to do retrospectives of certain like three or four games I played around a certain time that had those snippets that I can actually talk about something like putting together like, you know, earthbound with super Mario RPG and go, I played them various points, bits and pieces. I don't remember everything, but I'd have enough to talk about. Now I can actually do a real episode and kind of compare and contrast around this, uh, you know, other series retrospectives where I can talk about like a game series. I love like resident evil, but I didn't like all the games. So I can do the games I really enjoyed and loved. And then I can go back and do like a patina of the series of going, well, and here's the rest of them, and here's my thoughts on it, um, without having to dedicate a full episode and be disingenuous and say, well, I don't remember everything, and I'm sure there's going to be somebody out there who's going to play it fresh and go, and you got everything wrong, Phil. You screwed up every here. And I'm like, first of all, eh, I told you it was my opinion and my memories. It's not you. Second, sorry. 
sorry if I got your thing wrong. I played the game too. I had my fun and moved on with my life. It is what it is. It is. So where are we going? A recording, editing, listeners' questions. The, the the logo I think is great. The oh, uh, you, you know with the because you know it's the old floppy disk, isn't it? Basically, exactly. Even, yeah. Well, like I said, also among my my studies of school, I did do some graphic design, and I've done some graphic design work. And when I I started deciding to make the show, I'm like, what am I going to make for a cover? I sure as you know, sure as the day is long, I do not want to put my face on the cover because. Um, this is not something I like to present to the world, but it's what I'm stuck with. So I have to run with it. Um, and I don't want to do something boring. Wait a second. I'm a graphic designer. Just make a bloody logo. Just do make, make the logo already. You know what you're doing. And I thought about it for a little bit. I'm like, how do I want to do this? And I went, wait a second. Like the old Sierra games, they came in the three and a half floppy. Yeah. Why don't I just build one of those? It's real simple. I go into illustrator. I get blocks that I want, color them in. Yep. Do the type font that I know how to do, and there we go. Yep. That's how I came up with the logo. Yep. And I've had uh, exactly, and I've had so many people go. That was actually pretty cool. I like that. And now, Thank admittedly, you. I've seen a lot of very flashy logos out there, and stuff. I'm like, oh man, I wish I'd done that, or I wish I'd thought of that. But again, to me, it seems like I'm just ripping off ideas from other people. Now I know great artists steal, but it feels disingenuous. And I happen to like my logo. You know, it was a couple hours worth of work, but it's floated me very well. Um, I don't want to put like laser points, make it look like a 1980s arcade and flash and this and that and the other thing and put cartoon characters with my cats and me on them. I think I had something good. And especially because where the name came from, um, in a lot of cases, I have a habit, especially when games became something you could save on disk or save in a memory card or save in the cloud is when I complete a game, I just I wipe all the save files too because I'm trying to be cheap and save memory space. So, you know, it's also kind of like me, it's a, it's my denouement. It is me ending saying, okay, I have truly completed the game to the point where I can now delete the saves yep. and I'm not coming back to it. And so I went, you know, I did a little SEO work when I started doing this going, okay, another idea, but that's taken. Deleted saves isn't, there we go. And I felt it was only fair to put it on a three and a half floppy because that's where we used to save stuff on yeah. in the days of computers or what games came on is just a magnetic disc that you stuck in there and hope to God the dog didn't get a hold of it. Absolutely. So, crikey, we got there already. So what advice would you give to anybody if they were starting a podcast themselves? My advice is this. First of all, Talk about something you absolutely love to talk about, whether that's games, whether it's books, whether it's uh, painting pickles, whether it's, you know, um, just chatting with people, whatever it may be, whatever that you find entertaining and that you like, do that thing. Even if there are a thousand other people that are doing the exact same bloody thing, yep. go ahead and do it. Because it turns out it, they're more likely going to say, awesome, you're doing the same thing we are. Come on, let's be buddies. Let's talk about this. It isn't, if this isn't some weird rivalry where they're going to, oh, you're trying to steal my ideas. You may yeah. get a weirdo like that. But, you know, do the thing you love. Find your niche. Find your, you know, thing that you know is you and you know can get a little attention. Second thing, be yourself. Yeah. Whatever that person is, be yourself. If you're not, you know, if you need a script, if you want to write a script, walk it, use it. If you want to talk, just talk. If you happen to cuss in your show, you cuss. If you don't, don't. 
Uh, don't try to go for a metric. Don't try to impress people. Just be yourself. Give your thoughts on the matter. Give your spin. Give why this is subject is important to you, why you're coming to it, um, and how how that affects you, how that affects what you want to do. And I think if anything else, um, just, you know, again, just be open. If people come to chat with you, be friendly. This is something I'm not usually normally used to myself. But yeah, just chat with folks. If for some reason you don't hit it off, we're human. We don't hit it off with everyone. That's right. That's okay. You 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 learn something. If you have a chance to make a friend, make a friend. You know, don't be closed off, which is hard to say because I tend to be a little bit of isolationist. I'm not trying to be. I'm not trying to be better than anyone else or whatnot. I'm just, I was an early child. I'm used to silence, not like being around people. I'm not trying to be unfriendly. I'm just used to being by myself. It's nice though, when you find a community, try to be part of it. But if there's, you know, don't barge in like a know-it-all, don't pretend to be everything, just be you. If people are going to like you, they're going to like you. And if they're not, nothing you can do about it. Just move on. Those would be my advice for podcasters. Absolutely. I'll react to the to the last one first and say, if you are yourself, then, you know, it's your, it's you as a person, in essence, like you said, you know, th there are lots of, you're coming into a, into a, an, an area where most things that you're going to actually make a podcast about, somebody is already doing that anyway. So what makes you different from that person is the personality that is you, essentially, and the mm -hmm. way that you approach it as the person that you are. So that's the first thing that I'll touch on. I'll I'll go back to the first one that you said. Um, oh, I'm trying to remember. Dear me, 51, nearly 52-year-old me starting to lose my mind now about that. Um, what was the first it's one again? Kind of like finding, you know, find the thing that you love to talk about, whatever that is. Find your niche, find your whatever yes. it may be. Yep. That, if, if you try to find something that is going to get the audience, if you're trying to get an audience, essentially – and it's not something that you're interested in, mm -hmm. the people listening will know that it's not something that you're interested in because you haven't got the lively, you know, response to it. You're just sort of like reeling it off. Essentially, there's no life there in it. It needs to be something that you are interested in for you to put your whole self into. Exactly. And I'm not trying to be like a Joe Rogan up here or you know, any of the other really huge, massive podcasters they've got their audience they do their shtick um it's not for me i just have a little cottage industry that i'm trying to to grow here and if it's gotten as far as it's going to get that's okay you know i have a lot of fun doing it i've met a, some great people out there in the world and i've said my piece and i can rest easy knowing i've said what i had to say you can do the same whoever you may be Actually, the first one was when you said that um, the community with the people that yes. do the same sort of shows as you, and yes, I have, community. and you have it with all the the gaming shows. You've got a community that you're involved with, and I have the same sort of thing with mine because I came in and and I thought, oh dear, I'm going to have all these people who are going to hate me because I'm doing a program about podcast, 
And right. It's strange because I'm friends with people. I mean, one of the questions I asked you earlier that, hmm. I'd, that I'd mentioned that came from a listener, my guest list pod, that is a chap who actually has people on that I've been on his show. Mm-hmm. And and it it's a show about where he talks to podcasters about podcasting. And I've been on his show as a guest talking about this. And then I'm um, giving something away here, but I'm actually doing a guest spot where I'm going to actually take over another show where they do something similar that's mm-hmm. called Mastercast. And okay. they pick they pick a specific podcast to talk about for five minutes. And I'm doing that as a guest on their show. So all these people who make shows about shows mm-hmm. have become friends of mine and we're all sort of there. And it's it's a strange thing where the community helps each other. Yeah. And, and you know what? That's critical because, I mean, otherwise we are doing that. We are yelling into the vacuum of humanity. And yeah, you may get lucky. You may strike it rich. You may find people. But a lot of times you get there because someone else does something similar, uh, found you either by accident or went specifically looking and you happen to be there. You put yourself out there and they went, okay, we like what you're doing. We're going to help sort of, you know, we're going to contact you and say, hey, let's do a thing. Let's take a look at it. Come on my show, chat a bit. I'll come on your show if possible. You know, we'll we'll just, we'll, we'll shoot the, you know, whatever about the thing we do. We love, we'll talk a bit about a bit, it, excuse me, a bit about it. And then go on and just do, keep do our thing. Maybe if we're lucky, we'll get a few more people come in the door, give it a listen. And sometimes, again, don't be thrown off, you know, my another piece of advice I give is don't be thrown off by numbers on social media. The problem with social media is that it's easy. You one click, you're following someone. You could have hundreds of thousands of followers on social media and then turn around and maybe 10 people listen to your work or they view your art or they read your book. Don't worry about the thousands. We all like numbers. We love to see numbers. Humans are built to see numbers go up. We love seeing number goes up. Ever since the days when in Sumeria, they, they hammered, you know, chisel into wet clay and went, ooh, numbers. We love seeing those numbers go up. The problem is that thousand people who follow you on Instagram or Twitter or Snapchat, TikTok, whatever social media, your core audience is that 10 people who go back and listen to your show, who see your art, who view your book. Those are the people you should really concentrate on because that's how those 10 people become 20 and 30 and 40. You can get a million followers but of what use is it when there's no engagement, when there's nobody doing anything, when there's no, there's no anything. You're, you're better off with a smaller audience who's really there and wants to be there for you and what you have to say than worrying about, you know, anonymous people from across the globe. Absolutely. Anyway, how can people find your show and get hold of you then, Phil? Okay, I'm not huge on social media because I'm bad at it, but I have a couple places. On Twitter, I'm at Deleted Saves. On Instagram, I am Deleted underscore Saves underscore Podcast. Those are my two main outlets. I'm usually on either Twitter or Instagram, just poking around. Um, If someone wants to email me, I can be found at at Deleted Saves Podcast on gmail.com. Uh, I do check my email every so often, maybe a little, but if you want to say, like, throw a note my way or something like that, I'd appreciate it. Uh, other than that, you can find my show. Uh, I go through, I host through Anchor, so I'm on all the big platforms. I'm on Apple Podcasts. I'm on Spotify. Um, most every other podcatcher, 
I can be found one way or another. All you have to do is type in deleted saves and it should bring it up. Okay. And you can find pods like us on any streaming platform, such as the ones that Phil's just mentioned. And you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And contact us through podslikeus at gmail.com. Anyway, thank you for speaking with me today, Phil. Thank you. I appreciate very much uh, both your time and allowing me on your show. I really appreciate it. And thank you. And also, thank you because I now think that you are a friend. Oh, thank you very much. I agree. Very much a friend. Thank you. I've really enjoyed this a lot. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm I'm always nervous when I go on a show and I'm like, I'm going to sound like such an idiot. But then I'm like, I start talking like, no, you did good. I'm like, awesome. Absolutely. Very good. Anyway, thank you everyone for listening and hope you listen again to another episode of Pods Like Us.